I'm going to read from the 86th Psalm. As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read three verses from Psalm 86, beginning at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O, God, o Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of shale. Father, we're so grateful that you are our teacher. You know how little we understand of the spiritual realm of you and all that you have done. You know that your word is a mystery to us until your spirit illumines our minds and hearts. And so that is our desire today. We know that you tell us in the word that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. So we know that you're here with us this morning. And so we invite you to touch our hearts according to your great knowledge and your great will. Lord, we recognize that every day we need your forgiveness, we need your cleansing, we need your infilling. And Lord, we ask that uh, this day as we look at these uh, passages of Scripture, that uh, we will understand better how we ought to serve you. And Lord, that our lives will be a sweet aroma to those around us. And that in this, in this dying world, Lord, this world of darkness and tragedy, um, we will be that, uh, that glistening light that uh, shines in the darkness, that you will shine through us, and that men and women will be touched. We're just grateful for your faithfulness, Lord. And trust you to bless this hour, not only here in this class, but in the service and in all the other Sunday school classes, for the glory of your great name. Amen. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 14, and I'd like to read a beginning verse 28. 2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning to read at verse 28. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So he sent him again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it afire. So Absalom's servant, servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house, and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Verse 32, And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, and that I may send you to see the king, to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me still to be there. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there's iniquity in me, let me be put to death. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he, saw, uh, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Well, we remember the story because we've been looking at it now for a couple of Sundays. Uh, Absalom had assassinated his half-brother, whose name was Amnon. Amnon. Amnon was the oldest of David's sons, and he was the heir to the throne. But he had raped his half-sister, who happened to be Absalom's full-blooded sister. And so after putting up with David's indecisiveness, Absalom decided to take matters into his own hands and to murder his brother, half-brother. 
After the assassination, he fled to the country of Gesher, which if you see your little map of Israel in your mind, it was directly to the east, slightly to the north of the Sea of Galilee. His grandfather ruled there, but it was part of David's overall empire. After three years in exile, Joab finally decided this was not a good thing to have what was now the heir to the throne because Amnon was dead and apparently, apparently Daniel, the second son, who's never mentioned again, must be dead as well. So, so he, he tells David, you've got to you know, bring Absalom back. And he goes through the little routine that we read about in uh, the early part of the chapter. And so David does bring his son Absalom back to Jerusalem. But he was still angry with him because he had usurped David's authority. He had done what he had no right to do, he had no power to do, no authority to do in taking vengeance on his half-brother. And so David refused to see Absalom. Absalom was allowed back in Jerusalem, but as it says here, two years went by and Absalom was not even able to see his father's face, was not allowed to come into the presence of his father. Now he had served as a royal counselor. That was part of his job. That was what all the king's sons did. They stood all around David, or didn't necessarily just stand around David, but they served in the royal court as counselors to, to David. And so he had not done this now for five years. And he was languishing outside of his father's favor and also outside of the center of power because as we already know, and we'll see even further as we go through chapters 15 through 18, he wanted power for himself. And there's no way you're going to get power if you're out of the limelight, out of sight, out of mind, you know. And he didn't want that to continue. So eventually he, he, he called for Joab. He sent a message to Joab. He said, look, I want you to come to me because I have something I want you to do for me. Joab doesn't come. He sends a second time. Still Joab doesn't come. Joab turned a deaf ear to Absalom. And, uh, and it's not explained why. I gave a couple of possible reasons last time. But he simply refused to come at Absalom's summons. So, in his frustration, Absalom dared to take the extreme action that we read about in this particular passage. He wanted to get Joab's attention, so he told his servants, go out and set his field on fire. Go out and burn his crop. It worked. One way to get attention. Yeah. Worked like a charm. I mean, he had Joab in his lap in the next, I mean, during that same day. You can just imagine. Joab shows up, a bit steamed. And wants to know, what in the world are you doing? Why have you torched my field? Now, obviously, Joab made, I mean, Absalom made no attempt to hide who had done it because his whole purpose was to get Joab to come to him. So it was well known to Joab that his servants had been, that Absalom's servants had been ordered to do this. But Absalom, as, as, as the two encounter each other, Absalom immediately begins to counteract Joab's complaint with his own complaint. I summoned you twice and you didn't come. Why didn't you come? Well, now that he was there, it's sort of like a summons. You know, you receive a, a court summons. If they can't deliver it to you, you're home free. But once you get it, you're, you know, you, you, you can't avoid it. Uh, you have to go. And so now that Joab's there and uh, Absalom gives him his request, he can't refuse because Absalom is the son of the king. And so Joab has to acquiesce and carry out his uh, task. But there was a little problem that needed to be resolved here. It's, it's not said in the scripture, but I believe it had to be resolved. And that was uh, the fact that there was a law about what had happened uh, to Joab's field. Kind of a law concerning arson. <laughs> and I think probably that Absalom 
followed the law and made it right to kind of urge Joab to go ahead and, and do what he's asked him to do. We, we won't turn to it, but in Exodus chapter 22 in verse 6, it says, If a fire breaks out and spreads to the surrounding bushes, so that stacked grain or standing grain or the grain in the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. So there was an anti-arson law uh, that, on the books that, uh, you know, God foresees everything. And so I think probably that Absalom made it right. Well, as recorded in verse 32 of this passage, Absalom poured out his complaint to Joab. His pride has been hurt. I mean, here he is, the, the, in effect, the heir to the throne. He was the a prince of Israel, the son of the king. Uh, he had been three years in exile and now two years in Jerusalem. And his plans for the throne are being frustrated by this estrangement from his father. And so his hopes have been raised had been raised when he was recalled from Gesher. When, when Joab showed up and said, look, your dad said you could come home, I think Absalom's hope soared. Uh, my plans are ultimately going to be fulfilled. Then, of course, when he re arrived in Jerusalem and, and David wouldn't see him and wouldn't allow him to come to the center of royal power there, his hopes began to be dashed. Two years of ostracism caused him to be very concerned that he was never going to achieve his goals. It says here in the passage, why, why, why was I even recalled from Gesher if you're going to just stick me over here and keep me out of the center power? Why didn't you just leave me over there? Or if there's anything wicked in me, why don't you just execute me? It's kind of like he could not tolerate political and social limbo. He had to be active in pursuing his goal. I think what he viewed here was that David had given him partial forgiveness, but not total forgiveness. Now, when you think about that for a minute, forgiveness is not really forgiveness unless it's total. You can't really partially forgive somebody because partial forgiveness implies that there's still an issue there that has not been dealt with at all. And if there is still a lack of forgiveness, there's a natural alienation there. Absalom and David are being alienated by this ongoing situation here. Now, exactly what Absalom's relationship with his father was before all of this happened, we don't know. David tended to be a little bit distant from all of his kids, it seems. But the situation just goes from bad to worse. And it, it, it'll, it, even though David will eventually uh, bring about this reconciliation, the damage has been done. And Absalom will learn to detest his father and will even attempt a coup, as we, will, as we will read. Sadly, David had been torn between anger and love, anger at his son for what he had done, but love for his son. And he also was torn between mercy and justice. How do you balance mercy, mercy and justice? It's a very difficult thing. As a result, he had given Absalom hope for reconciliation when he was allowed to return home from exile, but then he provided no way by which the reconciliation could be ultimately completed. In thinking about that, it, it naturally drew me to thinking about our relationship with God. God does not have this dilemma. 
of trying to figure out, well, shoot, if I show them mercy, then my justice isn't being taken care of. And if I do justice, then they're going to be in big trouble. And God doesn't have that problem, as you know, because throughout the Old Testament, he provided the means for justification through the, obviously through mercy and grace, but also through the tabernacle system and then through Christ who came to satisfy the justice of God. And so God not only over offers to you and to me hope of forgiveness and hope of reconciliation, but he also provides the means for the consummation of that forgiveness and of reconciliation. And when God forgives, he doesn't just forgive part way. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to forgive you of this, this, and this, but you're going to pay for that, that, and that. No, he doesn't do that. God forgives us completely, entirely, and totally of our sins. And it's the fact that most people cannot grasp that. It's not in our human nature to understand that. The natural flesh is to think that there's something we've got to do in order forgiveness, for forgiveness to be earned. But there's nothing you and I could do to earn forgiveness. We can't work hard enough, be good enough to ever earn God's forgiveness. And that's, of course, the theme of what our pastor's been preaching on from the book of Ruth. Grace. The grace of God is, is so overwhelming. But, but there are large segments of the Christian world that can't accept that. Large, well, I suppose we'd call them denominations or divisions of Christianity that absolutely cannot accept just plain grace. There's got to also be works. There's got to be merit. There's got to be things you do in order to get God to forgive sin. As you know that uh, probably you remember Constantine the Great, a man who uh, at least legitimatized Christianity within the Roman world. Um, he was very profoundly impacted by uh, what was called semi-Arianism, which was a kind of a in-between the Nicene Creed, Creed and what basically Jehovah's <laughs> Witnesses believe today. And he was counseled of, with the fact that, you know, when you're baptized, your sins are washed away, and anything that you sin after baptism, you've got to deal with yourself. And so he waited to be baptized on his deathbed to try to catch them all, you know? Get all those sins so that they'd be washed away in, in baptism, uh, so there would be not much chance of anything being beyond that that he'd have to try to deal with some way outside of the grace of God, which is, of course, heresy. The grace of God covers all our sins. When Jesus Christ forgives us and cleanses us, he, you know, he, he's, he's today, yesterday, today, and forever. He's, he's in the eternal present, you can say. And so to him, there's not a past and a future as we view it. And so the sins of the past and the sins of the future are all covered by the blood of Christ when we come to him at the foot of the cross and are redeemed. And the scripture tells us that he buries our sins in the deepest abyss. I don't know if you are familiar with the deepest abyss, uh, but it's in the Marianas Trench. It's called Challenger Deep. It's 37,000 feet deep. That's a lot of water. You can cut off Mount uh, Everest at its base and dump it upside down, and you still have a mile of water sitting on top of it. If it were from our perspective, we just bury the sins about 100 yards out there so that we can dredge them back up when we want to flaunt it in somebody's face, like the devil does to you and to me when we're down and he says, yeah, but remember how wicked you were, those nasty things you did? We just have to keep reminding him they're under the blood of Christ. They're under the blood of Christ. Because he buries them 
He does not pull them up and throw them into our... God does not do that. If your sins come crashing back to you, the sins for which you, that you have committed under the blood of Christ, if they come crashing back unto you, it is not God who is doing that. When we sin, we are not banished from God's presence. His court is always open for us to come and to ask for His forgiveness. Let me read a, a passage that's not unfamiliar to you, of course, from the second chapter of Ephesians. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. And of course, when, when we read that word, we, we who are not of the Hebrew background, don't understand how much that word peace, shalom, means. It means a whole lot more than it does to us. We just think of peace as a quiet neighborhood or, you know, no war going on. But, but peace has the whole concept within it. The shalom has the whole concept within it of total well-being, spiritual, emotional, physical, financial, well-being in all of these ways, contentment, uh, uh, just a, a basic uh, sense of all is right between you and God. And so, for he himself is that peace who made both groups, and of course he's referring to the circumcision and the uncircumcision, which are, are uh, mentioned back in verse 11, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. In other words, there's no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace again, and might reconcile both them both in one body to God through the cross, by, having, by it having put to death the enmity. So that which stood between us and God, that which stood between Jew and Greek, has been put to death on the cross. The demands of the law were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the court of God is open to us to come at any time to ask forgiveness and to find that reconciliation which He so freely offers and, and is flowing out from His throne at all times. Unfortunately, you and I have been impacted by the fact that two of the largest liturgical groups of Christians tend to emphasize the wrath of God rather than the love of God. Now, we have to always balance love with justice, mercy with justice. But, but God is up there in His love and His mercy wanting to do good in our lives. He isn't up there wanting to smack us down. That's not His goal. And, and yet, you remember when Martin Luther's day, the view that Martin Luther rebelled against ultimately was the fact that Jesus was viewed as, as angry. And, and Mary always had to be there to intercede with her angry son. And of course, he would never, like uh, the, the Catholic teaching is that Mary, uh, Jesus has never refused Mary's requests. And so you have to go to Mary in order to get Jesus to calm down. And of course, if you look at the painting on the Sistine wall and the, uh, behind, the, uh, uh, behind the altar and the Sistine wall in, in the Vatican, you see a really angry Jesus coming, you know, in judgment. And that's not the Jesus of Scripture. Oh yes, there will be a day when He will come, as we see in the book of Revelation. 
And, but that's, that's, that's to deal with the, the, the world of flesh and the devil, uh, you know, to, to bring the end. But uh, Jesus is compassion and love and mercy and reconciliation and all of those things. And, and he just constantly invites us to come and to receive that reconciliation. Well, Joab was able to convince David to be reconciled with Absalom. Now, was it because David finally decided that his desire for justice had been satisfied because two years had passed and, and Absalom had been isolated for two years, ostracized for two years, and stewed in his own juice for two years? Is that, did that satisfy the justice that uh, David had in mind? Or could it be that it finally, uh, Joab just was able to just push David over the line in his, in his uh, ambivalence between his love and his anger against his son and, and to realize that his love is, is what needed to be demonstrated at this particular time? Was, J was David's pride satisfied, in other words? Pride always plays a role. It's constantly there. It was for David. So David summoned Absalom to his court. Now you can imagine, I, because of what the scripture says, Absalom didn't come in. Hmm, you know, you about time, Dad. No, scripture says he prostrated himself on the ground before his father. He all but groveled before his father in a great show of respect and submission. And in response, David gave him the kiss of reconciliation. And so the two were reconciled. But as I implied a bit ago, it was too late. It was too late to eliminate the alienation that had become installed in Absalom's heart. Now maybe Absalom would have done what he did even without all of this. We don't know. He was a man of great arrogance. But in the next um, four chapters, as we look at them, we're going to read about one of the great attempted coups of history, coup d'etat, that fortunately did not succeed in the end, but had every possibility of succeeding because Absalom was a man of great charm and great physical appearance. So let's look at the first six verses of the 15th chapter. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. And Absalom used to, used to rise up, to rise early, and to stand beside the way to the gate. And it happened that when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call, him to, call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, that every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And it happened that when a man came near to, the, to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom's pride had been horribly hurt. He was indignant that his dad had kept him at bay for lo these many years. And he was self-justifying 
of the fact that he was unworthy of what had happened to him, that his dad didn't do what he should have done and therefore he had to do it for him. And the five years of banishment and exile from the royal court had been more than he could tolerate. And so he begins a political campaign to replace his father. That's in effect what we're seeing here. It's a political campaign. He has come to detest his own father, to hate his own father, to feel that his father had wronged him. And you could just see how easily it would be for him to justify himself. After all, Amnon had done an evil deed, which according to the law should have resulted in his stoning. But it didn't happen. His father didn't even uh, chastise him as far as we know. And so Absalom felt he was in the right. He also knew that he was highly esteemed. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take somebody like Absalom long to notice all the heads, fo people following him as he goes along and, and all the ladies kind of ooing and eyeing uh, over him. He knew that the masses thought of him as handsome and regal in his appearance. Therefore, he decided to enhance that uh, impression, to make it even greater. And so he goes out and he gets himself, I, I think, a Rolls-Royce version of a chariot. You know, I mean, you, you could have the standard chariot, you know, kind of the typical brown four-door sedan. <laughs> or, or you could get the fancy one, you know, with the gold on it and the, and, and the flags flying and, and so forth. And he probably got a matched set of horses to, to pull the, the chariot. And the scripture tells us that he hired an entourage of 50 undoubtedly smartly dressed young men who had run out before his chariot saying, prepare the way, Absalom's coming, prepare the way, you know. So everybody would stand aside and ooh and ah at this guy coming by in this fancy chariot with all these men running in front of him. You just see this particular procession uh, going down the street. He believed in keeping himself before the people. He'd been out of the eyes of the people for five years. So now he's going to make sure the people know who he is, they see him, and they realize that this guy is a real handsome guy and that he's worthy of their acclaim and even of their votes, so to speak. He wanted to win their affections. But what is interesting in this passage is we discover that it wasn't just all show. It wasn't just ride through the streets and hope that everybody's going to vote for him. He decided he was wise enough to know that not everyone would be fooled by appearances. I mean, not everybody is a lame brain, uh, you know, chase after the nearest beautiful person kind of individual. We have a lot of those in our society, but, uh, and all societies have had, but not everybody's that way. Some would want to see action. Some would want to have at least the hope of redress of grievances. Therefore, we, we read that daily he would go out to the gate of the city, to the road leading into Jerusalem, probably the main road coming in uh, to Jerusalem, maybe from the north, maybe from the west. And he would stand there and watch the people going in. And, and I think he was, I don't think he was out there all by himself. He didn't put dress in burlap or, uh, you know, sackcloth and go out there and stand like a beggar. He went out there in royal robes, you know. And, and he probably had an entourage of handsome young men standing around him, you know, giving him acclaim. And uh, there he stood and watched the people going by and uh, beckoned to those who seemed to be coming into town with a judicial matter that they ultimately expected the king to take care of. Apparently, David did not have a royal representative at the city gate to 
interview or to pre-screen people that might be coming to the palace for the king's um, judgment. And so Absalom unofficially assumes that position as if he is the king's representative, only quickly it becomes clear he's representing himself. He's not representing David. No, I think David had certain hours of certain days that were the times that you would come and he would listen to your, your issue and, and he would render judgment on the issue that came in. Well, it's very probable, of course, that the hours that he had may not have been enough. There might have been a backlog. It's like our Supreme Court. I don't know if you ever looked into this, but the Supreme Court of the United States has like 6,000 cases on the dock, docket, and they resolve between one and 200 a year. Well, you know, it doesn't take very long to figure out if they didn't accept another single case, they're going to be a long time just resolving the ones that are on the docket. What that means is, of course, most will never be heard by the Supreme Court. I think I told this to you before once, maybe twice, <laughs> I forget after a while, that when I worked for the United States Post Office, one of the things, I, I drove truck, and one of the things they, they said was, if you ever get in an accident, don't say anything. Because since you're driving a government pe a vehicle, the people are going to assume they can sue the socks off the government. And he says what they do is, of course, unless the person has a real obvious claim, like you ran over somebody, you know, but if, if it's less obvious, they will put it on the court docket and it will never be heard. It just keeps kicking back, kicking back, kicking back. Others go before it, you know. And, and so people eventually just get tired of waiting and forget the whole thing, you know. So that's one way of resolving it. It's, that's our government in, 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 in action. <laughs> so what you have to do is if you ever sue the government, you have to make sure that your case has some big constitutional issue involved <laughs> so that they have to listen to it, you know. It's probably not good to sue the government anyway. Absalom not only implied, as we read here, that he would give speedy justice, but that he would rule in favor of the plaintiff. You, you noticed that what, what he said there in verse 3, he says, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on part of the king. <laughs> your claims are good and right. Well, how does he know the guy's claims are good and right? Did he analyze them? Did he listen to a whole presentation with, you know, of, of the case? Or, or did he just say, oh, you know, give me a synopsis of your case? And, oh, yeah, obviously you're right. He, he wanted everybody to be pleased. He wanted everybody to think, this is the man we should have uh, on the throne instead of this ineffective King David. In our study of chapter 14, we noted that David was the final arbitrator of justice in the land. They didn't have a court system like we have. You know, we're, we have lots of courts, state, local courts, state courts, federal courts, and we have a whole system and a means by which constitutionally a case can move from one level to the other level. They didn't have that in that day. What you had was, of course, the local elders of the local village and town. And they were supposed to render the, the decision according to the law. But if you didn't like that decision, you could then appeal to the king as the highest court in the land, as the final arbitrator of the land, sort of like Paul did when he stood at Caesarea Maritima and said, I appeal to Caesar. That, that was a right of all Roman citizens to appeal to the emperor personally, to be head by, heard by the highest man in the land. And so it was for the people of Israel, the right to go before the king to settle all disputes. 
you remember the hypothetical case that the woman brought uh, that Joab had hired, the woman from Tekoa said, you know, my one, my, my one son killed the other son and now the local people want to execute him because he murdered uh, some, but then I'm going to be left with no, no descendants. And, and so she was taking the, the uh, case to the highest court in the land. If people didn't like what the local elders decided, they had a recourse in matters of law and equity. In his discussion with the plaintiffs in this passage that we just read, Absalom seems to imply three things. He implies that David didn't really have the time to provide speedy justice. There are too many cases. He had other things to do. So the chances are that your case isn't going to be heard for a long time. And even if it is, that he might not be able to render a decision very quickly. Secondly, he implied that David doesn't really care. He's not concerned about your problem. Your, your case is of no consequence to him. After all, he's got bigger fish to fry than your little problem. And then thirdly, that he's not really capable of good judgment. That he'd probably give you a wrong decision. That you, you would probably have your wishes denied. So I, literally, Absalom is trying his father in, in court without his father there to defend himself. By inferring that a person had a good case and would win if Absalom were the judge. Absalom was subtly subverting the affections of the people from David to himself. Now think about it for a minute. David was an older man now. The scripture implies that David was a fairly good-looking man. But you know, he's older now and not that old men can't be handsome. <laughs> But, but, you know, David had been taken up with all of the affairs and he probably wasn't as accessible as he was when he was running around with his 600 men through the countryside. And, and so it was pretty easy to uh, convince people that Absalom would do a better job. He made himself appear to be very readily available and also concerned. Oh, I'm so concerned about this issue. Oh, if I could only be the judge and give you your due. <laughs> Verse 5, we see that when someone prostrated himself before Prince Absalom, that he reached out to lift the man to his feet and kissed him. Now, for those who had come by that time to accept the fact that there was a gulf between the common ordinary citizen and the king, this act of fraternization was very welcome to the people. Ah, Absalom, he could almost be my friend just think, the king is my friend. Absalom's plan worked. The people who came to Jerusalem to present their cases before the king were deceived by Absalom. At the end of verse 6, we read that Absalom stole away the hearts of the people, of the men of Israel. You notice he didn't win their hearts. He stole their hearts. There's a difference. He pretended, what a politician. <laughs> you know, he'd probably go a long ways today in our society. We've had a few Absaloms. He pretended to care about the people individually. Oh, I care so intensely. But what was in his heart was not compassion, was not justice, but was treason. You know, there are those who keep arguing that, you, you know, the, the personal life of the, of the leader is not important. It's just whether he can execute the, the position. 
Yeah, right. The character of the individual, the nature of the person, is so important to the proper execution of the law. The Apostle Paul made it very clear that there will be Absaloms in our midst. Let me read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's exactly what Absalom was doing. We will not be taken in by the deceivers who come into the church if we test every person's actions, attitudes, and words by the teachings of Scripture. In 1 John 4, 1, we read, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Well, how do we do that? Or do we go over with our little electric outlet tester and stick it in a spirit, you know? No. The only way we can test the spirit is that where every manifestation of the spirit comes out, see if it fits, if it lines up with the canon of scripture. That is our ultimate test. There's no other way by which, we can't test it by the way we feel. Oh, I, you know, I just don't feel right about it. Oh, I feel like this must be right. It just feels good to me. Well, we can be off in la-la land with our feelings. It's because people want to feel good that they do all the things like drink and drugs and everything else. It's got to be by an absolute standard, which, of course, that very phrase is verboten in our modern-day post-Christian, uh, post-modern society, you know. But it happens to be true. This is the only trustworthy standard that we have by which to test Scripture. And that is why, for example, Martin Luther, when he stood before the Diet of Worms, he said, you know, you can't trust councils and you can't trust the popes because they have often argued, with, I mean, d d uh, contradicted each other. He says, the only thing I can do is go by what the Scripture says. I have to test everything by Scripture. This reminds us, again, that if we are ignorant of the teachings of Scripture, we will be deceived by the Absaloms who come along. And there have been many of them. And there are many of them out there today. Some of them have big names. Some are whole denominations or, or at least, uh, quote, supposed Christian movements. And many, many are deceived by them. Well, I want to say a little bit more about that uh, relate, relating to uh, Absalom. So I think what I'll do is save that so we can uh, look at it a little bit more. Uh, after we look at one of the greatest deceptions again next week, as, uh, of course, it's not a Christian deception, but some Christians have been deceived by the more uh, Muslim faith.